Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples weekly sermon podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Heavenly Father, we know you to be in control of all things, uh, Lord, and so uh, I come to you now in prayer uh, for the welfare and the safety of those who are in the path of this massive storm that's roaring towards them, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would just uh, provide shelter. Lord, I pray that through this, you would do something amazing for the glory of your kingdom, Lord, that through this experience, that hearts would be turned to you, Lord, and not away. Lord, I pray for the, the children, especially, are on my heart that are in, this, uh, in the state of Louisiana there, Lord, in the surrounding areas. Would you please, Lord, have mercy, Lord. Thank you, Lord. We trust you. We love you. We honor you. We give you glory. Amen. All right. We are going to be in the book of... All right, excellent. So turn over to Galatians chapter 4 in your Bibles. If you don't have your Bible today, Cesar has Bibles, Charlie has Bibles, just put up your hand. We'll give you a Bible today to follow along with us. It's so important to follow along with us because then you know if I go completely off track. (laughs) And uh, we don't, you know, there's no clock, there's clearly no timer. Uh, (laughs) So that this is the only way you know whether I'm getting close to the end or not if you follow along with me verse by verse. <laughs> and even then, you don't know. Uh, so um, if you don't have a Bible, uh, and we've just put one in your hands, please take this Bible home with you. Uh, let this be uh, your own Bible that you take home. You know you have to take this thing home, and you have to open it up, and you have to read it over and over and over again. Many people in this room have been reading the Bible for years and years and years. Is there anybody here in this room that feels like, no, I'm good. I've read it enough times. Anybody? Anybody? Good. Scared me there, AC. It's your head. I thought you were being like, yeah. (laughs) Before we jump into this, let's go ahead and pray. Father God, we do just dedicate and give this time to you this morning, Lord. As we're gathered to here in, in, in safety and freedom, Lord, we pray that you would take this time now, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, I pray that each one of us, through the worship of song, has prepared our hearts, Lord, to hear from you. But if, Lord, there are any here that aren't ready, Lord, I pray that in this moment, as I pray, Lord, that we all would prepare our hearts to hear from you today through your word. Lord, take these words that I prepared, and, and Lord... Use them to create a masterpiece of yours. Lord, we thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. You know, and maybe you don't know, but you know, the Bible that we have in front of us is broken up into chapters and verses and books and things like that. And where the books are, you know, the books as they were written, the chapters and, and verse numbers, they were added later on so that it would be easier to find things if, we, if I was to say, hey, turn to that part in Galatians that talks about grace. That's not so easy to do, right? But if I say turn to Galatians chapter 4, verse 1, you know exactly where to go. 
Uh, and so that's why these things were put in for reference so that we could find where it was that we were going when we opened up the Bible. But they weren't in there when Paul wrote the letter to Galatians. He didn't write chapter 1, verse 1. He didn't do that. He just wrote a letter, and then it was later it was divided up. And sometimes that's really great. It works to our benefit. And other times uh, it falls at a place where it makes it seem a little bit disconnected from the chapter before. We happen to be in one of those places. So I'm just going to backtrack a couple of verses to give you some context to what he's talking about because he just jumps right into chapter 4 talking about the air. Um, and not the air we breathe, the air with an H, like someone who is an heir. So I'm going to go all the way back here to verse 24 of chapter 3 where it says, Therefore, therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. And so remember, Paul is refuting this idea that there was something that was needed to be added to what Jesus had done for us. They were like, yes, Jesus and the law. That's why he spends all of chapters one and two uh, and three getting to this place. That's why in, chapter, in verse 24, he says, therefore, he's referring to everything that I've talked to you about, everything that I've talked to you about, about adding the law uh, to what Jesus did, um, and he says, therefore, and there's a little clue if you're a Bible student or if you want to be, I hope you do. Whenever you see the word therefore, you ask yourself, what's it there for? All right? And then you say, oh, I need to just look back and say, what's he saying therefore? Therefore. What's he therefore? I'm just going to keep saying therefore. But he says the law was, not, uh, was our tutor. Remember, we looked at last week how the, tutor, the, the word there, tutor, it means escort, not the thing that was going to teach us, not the schoolmaster, it might say in some of your Bibles, the, the tutor or the schoolmaster gives the impression that he's saying the law is supposed to teach you. But actually what the purpose of the law was is what he's saying right here is the law was designed to escort you to the truth. The truth was Jesus. The law was provided to escort you to the knowledge that you needed a savior. That's what the purpose of the law, and that's what Paul is saying. You have to remember, I got to keep reminding myself when I read this, that Paul is just kind of going on and on about how, you know, the, the purpose of the law was to lead people to Jesus. And he's going to go on and he's going to say, therefore, there's no difference between free or slave or male or female. He's going to say this. This is a big deal for Paul to say this because who was Paul? He was like a Jew for sure, but he was a Jew that was under the law from the very beginning. He was a Pharisee, and he wasn't just a Pharisee. He called himself the Pharisee of Pharisees, which meant I know the law, I follow the law, I make sure other people follow the law. And Paul has been so converted in his thinking by an introduction to Jesus Christ that now he says, now I totally understand what the purpose of the law was to drive me to an understanding that I needed a final sacrifice that could only be through Jesus Christ, not any of this animal sacrifice that we've been doing for 1,500 years. It's, you've got to keep remembering that when you read Paul's letters, where Paul came from, because you see such a change in his life. And that wasn't because Paul suddenly got smart. It was because the Lord got inside him and changed him and conformed him. So he says, for you all are sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. 
We've all just been holding on, several of us, we talked about this on Thursday, just been holding on to this verse. It says, as many of you are in Christ, have put on Christ. The idea is, you know, if you've been in church at all, you've ever heard anybody teach this, you've got to put on Christ. You know, it's like putting on a garment, and that's what we've always kind of thought. You know, like you pick up your jacket, and you put it on, and you're like, ah, I put on Christ. But it's even more than that. It's actually much deeper than that. It's not that you put him on like you would put on your denim jacket. It's it's the idea that you put on a garment of Christ and sink into it. So imagine you've got this big, you know, fluffy, warm kind of down coat. I don't know if you know what a down coat is because we're in Florida and it's like 90 degrees always. But, uh, you know, up in the north, when it's cold outside, you have this big, thick coat, and you put this big coat on, and you're just, like, you're just in it, and you're wrapped up in it. And then you go outside where it's cold and nasty, and that coat is just wrapped around you, and it's just keeping you warm and protecting you. And that's the concept, really. It's this idea that you're putting on the garment of Christ, but you're sinking into him, right? And so that it's not just this casual garment, but it's this thing that engulfs you, that it comes around you, and that it holds you. And almost, you, if you could say this of a coat, it embraces you. And that is what he's saying, and that is his hope for them, is that if you are in Christ, you've put on Christ so that you're just wrapped up, totally engulfed in him. Oh, man. My wife used to have this, we called him Big Red but it was a big red winter coat. And it covered, it had a hood, and it went all the way down to about here. And when she put that on and went outside in the wintertime, she was completely covered. And there, when you're inside that garment, you feel completely protected. You feel just completely covered, like head to toe, right? Let's, you know, let's do that. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for we are all one in Christ. And remember, that's a huge deal. Paul was a Jew. The Jews thought that the Jews were the only ones that God cared about. In fact, they thought that Gentiles were only created to stoke the fires of hell. And so for Paul to say, there's no difference between Jew and Greek or Jew and Gentile. Yeah, the Gentiles must have been like, <gasps> as a matter of fact, I'm going to say it and you all gasp. There's no difference between Jew or Gentile. <laughs> yes. Mm -hmm. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And we'll see, he's refuting this idea that just because you are a descendant of Abraham, that somehow you are more so than anybody else. But what Paul is going to come back with is it's not being related in some distant line that makes you a, a child of God, a son or a daughter of God. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what does it. And John the Baptist would, would later say, you know what, just because you claim to, not later say, before said, just because you claim to be a descendant of Abraham, that's nothing. He could raise up sons from these rocks on the ground. No, it's not it's not their uh, relationship with Abraham. It is their relationship with Jesus that makes them a son or a daughter of Christ. You know you have to be a son or a daughter of God through your own relationship. There's a saying that says God does not have grandchildren. That means you cannot get your faith through your parents. You can't pass on your faith 
to your children. You can raise them up in the way that they should go, the Bible says, but that decision has to be everyone's individually. Every individual person has to decide that I need a relationship with Jesus Christ. Verse four, uh, chapter four, verse one, it says, now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is a master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time of appointed by his father. And so Paul, he takes this idea of an heir, and this means something especially to them. And he's saying, look, when uh, a child is in a home that's wealthy, he is an heir, meaning that there is something that is promised to him that is to come but right now, he doesn't enjoy the freedoms that come with being a part of that, that family. In fact, what, what he's comparing it to is the slave actually, on a day-to-day basis, has more freedoms than the heir. And think about it like this. If you, if you had a, a wealthy home here and there was children, and in that home there was a butler, right? The children, five or six years old, are heirs to that family's fortune, but they're not out there with all the kind of day-to-day freedoms. Like, they can't just go down to the garage, hop in the car, and drive down to the beach, because they are under the control of the household. But the butler, at the end of his shift, he goes home. He goes to McDonald's. He goes to the beach. He does whatever he wants, right? And so Paul is kind of making this idea that they are, uh, if you're under the law, you are always that child who is under the law. You're not an heir able to take part in the promise. Even so, when we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. You know, it's also like this. Um, uh, when I was little, I lived in this little town. And I went to this little school. And when I was in kindergarten, my mom walked me to school. Like, you know, maybe you remember, maybe this was your same situation. She would walk me to school in kindergarten to make sure I got there. We lived about a mile through town. And she would write my name on a piece of tape and, and stick it on the back because I obviously knew what my name was, but that was for the, the, you know, my teachers. And, and she would hold my hand and she would walk me to class. She would escort me to school. But when I got to school, she didn't teach me, did she? She was just my escort, right? And she did that until I actually started to grow and mature. And at some point, as I grew and mature, I didn't need the escort to get to where the truth and the knowledge was anymore, right? It would be silly to think that, In 12th grade, I'm walking with my mom to school, and she's writing my name on a piece of tape, and I'm walking into my senior year with my my mom holding my hand with my name taped to my back. But that's essentially what they're talking about when you combine the law with faith, is that you're clinging to the escort as something that is something that you need. And Paul's like, no, you, you get beyond that when you understand what the truth is. Now, in kindergarten, let's say I just first day, kindergarten, I just really matured and I learned everything and I knew exactly how to, my mom wouldn't, I wouldn't need my mom. Right? That's where my analogy falls apart. But it's, you know, it's, you get the idea. <clears throat> He says, even so, when we were all children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Do you know what's so cool about verse 4? In the fullness of time, when the fullness of time had come. Do you know what that means? When God decided it was the exact right time, he sent Jesus. When he decided it was the exact right time. The fullness of time. Was, there's a saying that says God is never late and God is never early. 
God is always exactly on time. And this is what this is talking about. In the fullness of time, he looked out at his plan and he said, on this day, my son Jesus is going to arrive in the form of a baby to this couple in this town at this time in order to accomplish these things. And it is exactly on the day and the time that I want him. And if you were here uh, when we went through the Gospels or at Christmas time, we've talked about this. It's so exact that the, the people who came to see him knew exactly where to go because it was all prophesied that he would be exactly at this place, exactly on this time. But that's not the end of the fullness of time, I don't believe. See, that he also knew that not just would he arrive at this time, but he would actually arrive as the final sacrifice on Palm Sunday on that exact day and also prophesied that. If you look in Daniel, he shows you to the exact day that he would ride into Jerusalem as the final sacrificial lamb, not just on the day that was prophesied, but on the same day that they would actually take the sacrificial lambs and inspect them for sacrifice. And that's exactly what he was there for, to be inspected, which he was, to be sacrificed, which he was. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <clears throat> All right, chapter 3, verse 24. There. Powerful him, message. We ought to want him back. <laughs> <laughs> the fullness of time is God's timing. God's timing is perfect. See, he knew and he had an appointed time that Jesus would arrive on this planet. He knew and had a, a specific time of when Jesus would ride into Jerusalem to be the sacrifice. And here's the thing. He knows and has an exact time that Jesus will return the last time to take all of us home. And it will be exactly on the day that he has said will be the fullness of time. It will not, he will not tarry longer than he wants to. He will not come any sooner than he means to. It will be on the exact day because he's proven himself to be faithful to his word in the fullness of time had come. God sent forth a son born of woman under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoptions of sons. And I'm just going to, I'm just going to, if you're a woman here today, when I say sons, I want you to know that God is talking about sons and daughters, but he's using the word sons and daughters more than children. It's a different kind of an implication. All right. But he said that he sent Jesus, his son, that's who he's talking about, to redeem those who were under the law, to redeem. I mean, it is such an incredible word here, redeem. When we think about redeem, um, there are some words that, you know, over time have kind of lost their potency, right? They've, uh, they've begun to be um, watered down by the, the way we use them now. And redeemed is one of those words because, you know, sometimes when you think about the word redeemed, it's almost like in exchange for, or I'm like cashing in this gift certificate. I want to redeem this coupon kind of a thing. But the word redeemed is so much greater than that. It's like, it's like when we say, um, oh, man, he really knocked it out of the park, right? Well, we kind of know what that means. Knocked it out of the park means he did a really great job. But if you actually play baseball, you know how hard that is to knock it out of the park. You know, if you've ever tried to hit a uh, professional baseball player's pitch, you, you can't do it. 
It's coming like 90-something miles an hour, and it curves all around, and it goes up and down like that, and you just can't. It's so hard. But, but, but if you were in baseball, you would understand when someone says, man, he knocked it out of the park. It would mean to you something really amazing. It's the same with the word redeemed. We think, oh, redeemed. Okay, we totally get that. But see, what he, who he was talking to, redeemed, it means this. It wasn't just that he paid the price for you. This word redeemed means that you were a slave. You were in bondage. You were a slave. And not only did he pay the price to redeem you from the slave's auction block, which is exactly what this word is talking about, and they would know that, but that he paid the price for you to be free, and then he set you free. He purchased you and set you free. That's the word redeemed right there. And so he was saying he came to give freedom to those who were under the law to redeem them. You know, we've been talking about this idea that people who um, thought that it was like, well, it's Jesus and the law because there are good works that I need to do because it contributes to my righteousness. You know, if I do these, these many good works, then I'm, I'm this righteous, and this righteous may be more righteous than that guy over there, and you know, it makes me feel good because then I'm really, really righteous, and he's just kind of righteous. <laughs> Ironically, your standard of living under grace is much higher than if you were living under the law. In fact, if you live under the law, you tend to do the bare minimum just to get by. Let me give you an example from the Bible. In Matthew and Mark, it talks about a young man called the rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus and he says to Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, well, he says, why do you call me good? And what makes you think you're a judge of what's good? But aside from that, he then says, um, follow the commandments. And the rich young ruler says, what? Which ones? Look it up in Matthew. Which ones? What is he saying? Well, do I have to follow all of them? Or what's the bare minimum of commandments I need to follow in order to be considered righteous enough to inherit the kingdom of heaven? Which ones? So Jesus says, okay. He says, uh, don't murder. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't bear false witness. And love your, uh, honor your mother and your father and love your neighbor as yourself. And that's what he gives them. He throws those out there. And the man says, all those I've done since my youth. <laughs> really? Because what he's saying is, look at all of my good works that I've done. Clearly, I'm righteous. And you didn't even include all the other ones, so I just get away with the bare minimum. And then Jesus says, sell everything you have, give it away, follow me. Right? That's what he says. And the guy says, he goes away sad because he had great possessions. Now, this guy was like, but what about my works? I've done, all, look at all I've done. Doesn't that make me righteous? And Jesus says, what makes you righteous is me. Follow me. Get rid of the stuff that is your God. All of your possessions, they were great. It says, Jesus says, get rid of all that stuff. Follow me. And the guy goes away sad because he's like, I want it to be about my works. I want it to be about what I've done. <laughs> Sometimes I say to my kids, I really want you to go in this morning and clean your room. 
Why? It's my room. If you have kids, you hear these as, I know where everything, this is how I like it. Get in there and clean up your room. And so this is what they do. They go in and they obey what I say. They are going to clean their room, but things are stashed under there. And they're put, you, you, know, you open a drawer and it's just, nothing's folded. It's all jammed in. You open up their closet and it's like everything just kind of went in there. And, uh, and you look under a dresser. And so technically, they cleaned their room, but they did what? the bare minimum to show that they had done what I had asked them to do. But occasionally, very occasionally, they'll go in and clean their room without me asking because it makes me happy and they know that. Now, when that happens, they actually do a really good job. Things are put away, things are folded, dishes are under the dresser, they're actually in the sink. Dishwasher would be better. <laughs> but they do it not because I ask, but because they want to please me. They want to make me happy. And they know that doing that will. And that's what we're talking about. Serving God because I have extreme gratitude for who he was, is, and what he did, rather than say, I need to do this because, well, this is what I'm supposed to do. If you have that attitude, you're going to be doing the bare minimum rather than to going above and beyond. As if someone who has extreme gratitude for what Jesus did for them is going to do the works of God, but it's because they love him and they want to make him happy. And there is no end to the energy that you'll have in that sense. The bare minimum is just going to wear you down because you're always going to be trying to figure out, well, is this enough? Could I do less? Should I do more? <laughs> When I understand grace, I am delighted to do the work of the Lord. Seven, he says, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. I've read this before. You've probably read this before. It says we're no longer slaves, which means what? Well, we're free. We were slaves, and now we're free. But he says you're no longer slaves, but you're sons and daughters. Do you understand the implications? Do you understand how big of a deal that verse is? He's saying, you're not just free, you're my son or daughter. Now, he didn't have to do that. Do you get it? He said, not only am I going to free you from bondage, but I love you so much that I'm going to make you a son or daughter. Being freed from bondage would have been enough, don't you think? Would have been enough to say, thank you for freeing me from bondage. But he said, oh, no, that's not it. It's freed from bondage, and you're my son or daughter, which means you now are heir to a promise that no one else can give you. That's huge, that you are freed and you are a son or daughter of God. God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. First of all, he gives you the Holy Spirit so that you can begin to understand that concept, that you are freed, but you're also his son or daughter. Because uh, that's only a knowledge that comes from the, the Holy Spirit living inside of you and giving you understanding. So then he says, so that you could cry out, Abba, Father. 
Now, I know you've heard this before, Abba, Father. Is the word Abba is our equivalent to saying Daddy, like this intimate relationship with God so that he's not just the, you know, oh, good, good morning, Father. You know, if you've seen, you know, Downton Abbey or any really, you know, hoity-toity show, and they're like, oh, hello, Father. Yes, Father, thank you, Father. And it's very kind of like a, um, not quite as intimate. But he says at the same time, I want you to know that I'm your Abba, your, your dad, an intimate relationship with me, which is completely, by the way, unique to Christianity. But again, he says, Abba, Father. Not just Abba. It isn't just an intimate, loving relationship with God, but he is also that father, that authority figure, that one who is in charge. He says it's both. There's a balance. You understand, it's not all one or all the other. It's a balance between, yes, I am the the intimate father that loves you, but I also am an authority in your life that points you in the right direction and holds you accountable for some of the actions that you're living It's the same way with any of us who are parents. We have a close and loving relationship with our children, daddy, but there is that part that says, but I will correct your actions and punishment may be involved because it will be good for you also. You know, when you, uh, when you try to tell your kids when you're, when you're punishing them, it's like, this is, this is for your own good. As a kid, I'm just like, what? Doesn't seem like it. Because, you, you know, it's hard to understand as a kid. But as a parent, you're like, you don't understand. But this, is for, this will make you a better person. This will make you whatever. This is something you need. But we want our kid, kids to have a loving relationship as well as understand the authority that we are in their lives. And God says the same thing. I want you to have an understanding of Abba, but you also have to have an understanding of Father because it's both of those things together. <clears throat> Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and the son that is an heir of God and Christ. But then, indeed, when you did not know God, you, were served, you served those who by nature, which were not gods. Remember, he's talking to them before Paul came with the gospel. They were heathens. They were worshiping pagan gods. And so he, re, he reminds them, before you knew God, you served those who were not gods. But after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? (laughs) I think there's a little bit of Paul here that's just astounded with this, what's going on here. He's saying, look, before you knew God, you were serving pagan gods, and they were fake. They were false gods. There was nothing to them. When he says weak and beggarly, um, that literally means weak and beggarly means that they were empty and shallow with no substance or power at all. Though That's the combination of those words together in Greek. He's saying they were, they were so weak that there was nothing for them to stand on and they were empty and frail. There was no power. And yet that's what you were worshiping. That's what you were turning to. But then you were given an understanding of Jesus Christ and God the creator and you embraced it. Now all of a sudden you want to go back to what was weak and beggarly, empty and frail and powerless? That, I, I think Paul's just like, what, 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 why? 
But then look at verse 10. He says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. <laughs> See, these Judaizers were coming in and saying, you need to follow the law of Moses. It means you've got to keep these feast days and you've got to keep these rules. And, you know, certain days are special. And, you know, if you don't do them, if you're not keeping the Sabbath, oh, oh, oh forget it. Forget it. And Paul makes a comment about this. It's like, you're going off track. You observe these days and months and years. I'm afraid for you. He says, I'm afraid for you because you're putting all of your faith in keeping these specific days where your faith belongs squarely on Jesus. You're being distracted. You're being told by somebody that unless you keep these particular days or feasts or holy days, you're not doing it right. You're not doing enough. There's a proverb uh, that must have been going through Paul's mind at this point where he sees that they've left all of this uh, filth and corruption behind and, and gone on to a wonderful relationship with Jesus Christ, but now they're kind of looking back. There's a proverb that says, so as a dog returns to his vomit, oh, so a fool to his folly. So a fool to his folly, which means at some point the fool looks at his folly and says, I don't want that anymore. And he's like, oh, I want Jesus. And then someone comes over and he says, yeah, but what about those feast days? And he starts going, mm, and looking back. And Paul says, you're looking at these observance of days to make you righteous. You know, there's a, an Old Testament book called Amos. Anybody ever read that book? The book of Amos is uh, about this guy, Amos. He's a prophet that God sends a message to at a time when Judah and Israel were divided as kingdoms. And though they were outwardly um, prospering, inwardly they were corrupt. And all kinds of corruption had crept into both of these kingdoms. And God sends a message to Amos to give to them, saying all this woe that was going to come upon them because of this. But he says this one part in chapter 5, verse 21. He says, God says, I hate, I despise your feast days, and I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, nor will I regard your fat and peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I'll not hear the melody of your stringed instruments but let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. And he's saying, you're coming to me with feast days, but you're corrupt and filthy on the inside. Your intention is just to impress me with your righteous works, which I see as filthy rags, I say I would write. And God says, I hate your feast days. Not because they keep them, but because they keep them thinking that they're making them righteous when on the inside they're filthy and corrupt. To me, that speaks a lot to uh, if you're sitting here thinking, well, I go to church, it makes me a good person. Well, it makes you here in this building. That's about all it does. It makes you in the company of you know, some people who are really holding on to God, but it doesn't make you righteous. Guess what? Lent does not make you righteous. Keeping Lent Giving up something for 40 days around Easter doesn't make you more righteous before God. Amen. Praying with your hands up in the air, praying down on your knees in front of everybody doesn't make you more righteous. A relationship with Jesus Christ and his righteousness is what makes you righteous before God. That's all. That is it. I'm afraid for you, 
lest I have labored for you in vain. Brother, I urge you to become like me. You know, Paul isn't sitting there saying, look, I'm so awesome. I am awesome. Be like me. Paul isn't saying that. He's saying, I want you to follow Christ Jesus as I follow Christ Jesus, as I was an example to you when I was there. Paul would say, for me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Live that way. Paul says, live that way. For I became like you, but to you have not injured me at all. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at first, and my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For you bear witness that, if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. You remember when we were talking about Paul's missionary journey, and he kind of came into this low kind of sea-level region that was outside of Galatia, and it was very likely, and many people believed that he contracted uh, malaria, and so he headed up into the mountainous regions to get to a thinner atmosphere that he thought would help, and this is what he's talking about. I came to you when I was sick, and you saw that I was sick, and you loved me, and you took care of me, and you got to love me so much that you would even trade your wellness for my wellness, for my sickness. That's how much you loved me. He's trying to make a point here. He's saying, we knew each other. We loved each other. You took care of me when I needed to be taken care of. We had a relationship. And then he says, have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? He's remember We were so close. You loved me. You took care of me. Now I'm coming to you with something that you don't feel like you believe anymore, but it is the truth. Are we enemies now? It just feels so real right now, doesn't it? It does. It really does. That someone that you come to with truth who used to believe it, and you say, what happened? I thought, you know, you you used to believe this, and they're like, well... You know, and I watched this, and I saw this video, and this guy said this thing, and now I don't, I don't believe it. Not only do I not believe it, because you don't believe it also, I hate you. We're enemies now because you don't agree with me anymore. Paul is saying, well, I am coming to you as a friend who loves you with truth, and maybe the truth hurts you right now, but it is good for you. There's another proverb that says what? Faithful are the wounds of a friend but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. He says the people that are going to come to you and just tell you whatever you want to hear all the time, they're not your friend. They're trying to deceive you. But I'm telling you the truth, and maybe it hurts a little bit. Maybe it hurts a lot to hear the truth, but it's the truth, and you won't believe it, and it's going to be for your own good. Guys, we got scads of time. They zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them. Do you see that Paul is kind of pointing out what their goal was? The Judaizers coming down. He's like, they're not really coming down to help you even become more righteous, really. They're coming down to exclude you. That word is lock you up. He's saying they're coming down and they're telling you this thing. Remember, we talked about how their appeal wasn't just, oh, well, you need to do this and scaring them into keeping the law. It was an appeal to their vanity. 
They were trying to appeal to their vanity, lock them up so that they then could be zealous for the Judaizers that were coming down so that they would be elevated in their own positions. There's nothing good about that. He's saying that's why they came down to court you, to lock you up so that you would be zealous for them. But it is good to be zealous and a good thing always and not when only when I am present with you. So he's like, zeal on its own isn't a bad thing. Paul, if anybody, was zealous, right? Paul was zealous before he met Jesus. In fact, that was his driving force. He was zealous for God and thought that he was doing the right thing. And Jesus got a hold of him and converted his heart but he didn't stop being zealous, did he? In fact, he probably was even more zealous. And he's saying zealous for a good thing is always good, especially when it's not for everyone to see. So Paul's like, even when I'm not there, be zealous for good things. And it's like, you know what? Be zealous for good things, even when no one's going to see you do it. <laughs> well, that's, you know, that's really good advice. Be zealous for good things, even when no one will see you do it. It's like that question, like, if a tree falls in the woods, does it make a sound if no one's there to hear it? Well, the answer is yes. Yes, it does. Is it good to do good things, even though no one will see you do them? Yes. Yes, it is. If you're looking around and, uh, you know, you do something really good, and then you're like, nobody saw that? Nobody saw me do a good thing? He says, do it even when I'm not there. Do it when there's no one there to see you. Be zealous for what's good always. My little children, Paul, isn't that nice? Paul's like, my children, mine, you're, you're intimate with me. You know me. My little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. <laughs> In fact, that means, you know, that's kind of misleading. It's like, you know, well, like God's going to come in and he's going to fill up a space that looks just like me, inside of me. But that's kind of the opposite, isn't it? We're actually be, being conformed into his image. That word that he uses formed into you, it means to shape or transform you. So he's like saying, until Christ has shaped or transformed you into his image. Paul's going to write in Romans, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How's that happen? Through the word. Through the word of God. That's how your mind is renewed. <clears throat> I would like to present with you now, be present with you now and change my tone, for I have doubts about you. you know, it's, it's a funny thing that he writes here, right? Um, there are no emojis at this time that Paul is writing. He, he can't write a letter and then feel like, oh, that sounds kind of hard, and put like smiley face, smiley face, smiley face. Like we do, you know, when you send a text to somebody and you're like, well, I don't want them to think that I'm being rude. And so you put like a smiley face at the end. And then it's like, oh, okay, you know, now I get the tone of their letter. And so Paul is like saying, I know maybe that this sound of the stuff sounds kind of harsh. I wish I was there so that I could express to you the emotion, the real emotion that's coming through in my words, what I'm really feeling when I'm talking to you about this. I wish I was there to be able to express this, to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. Tell me, 
You who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? Okay, so there's a shift in the letter a little bit right here because he's partly still talking to the people he's writing to, but also part of this is now he's addressing the people who are there who desire to be under the law as well. And so he's saying, tell me, you who desire to be under the law. And there's something really interesting here. From the very beginning of this letter, Paul is writing to the Galatian churches and he's directing it really at them. He's saying, oh, well, who has bewitched you? Who has lured you away, right? But all, this, all of these comments, he's directing at them as if he's saying, you know the truth and yet you are allowing yourself to be drawn away. In order for you to be able to change this, you need to take some responsibility in this. It isn't all just happening to you. But now he addresses them and those who desire to be under the law. Do you, do you hear the law, he says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by the bondwoman and the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. For there are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar, for this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. Got it? <laughs> I'm going to break that down a little bit. So he's making reference to um, God making a promise to Abram at the time and saying, like, you, you know, you're going to have a son and through him is going to come this great long line. And after a while, if it doesn't, and Abraham isn't that young at the time when it's happening, but after a while, there's like his wife, Sarah, is not, not getting pregnant. And so Abraham says, I have an idea. And actually, it's his wife has an idea and says, you know what, Abraham, why don't you come in and lay with my handmaiden, Hagar? And, and I think, you know, I think Abraham was maybe just a little too quick to be like, all right. Yeah. But he agrees and they get together, and they have a son, and they name him Ishmael. Later on, um, God is saying to Abraham, who's now 98, 99 years old, and he says, uh, I, I am going to give you a son that's going to, he reiterates the promise, I'm going to give you a son, and through him is going to come the promise, is, is a promise of the one to come, the redeemer of all the world. And Abraham He's just like, God, I'm 100 years old. Like, can, can a, a woman and a man who are 100 still have a baby? And then he says, what about Ishmael? Can't Ishmael live before you? And, and in essence, what, you know what Abraham is saying right there in that moment? Look, I, Lord, I fulfilled your promise through my own works, through my own flesh. Look, you said we were going to have a son. It wasn't happening, so we, we had a son. I mean, technically, we had a son. I mean, it's, it's Hagar's baby, but, you know, Sarah kind of owns that because that was the relationship with the handmaiden. And he's like, look, I was able to fulfill your promise through the work of my own flesh, and can't that just be good enough? And God says, no, no. There is one who is a child of promise, that's going to come, and through that child of promise will come the one redeemer. And that is what Paul is talking about right here. And he's saying, look, the, the one, the, the, the child that was fulfilled through the flesh, that's the law. But the child that was fulfilled through promise, that's the child of promise. 
For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear, break forth and shout, who are in not, who, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he for, but as he who was born according to the flesh, then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. And if you remember the story, Ishmael, every chance he got, was persecuting and picking on Isaac, who was the child of promise. Just as we see these Judaizers coming in and, and like picking on these Christians, these new believers, and saying, well, you know, you don't have it right. You don't have the whole picture. You've got, you've got to do this, 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 and this. You have to do these things. Persecuting those who were the children of the promise. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. He's saying, this is Paul. Remember, this is Paul talking to them and saying, you need to cast off the son of the flesh, the one that is of bondage. You need to cast that off. Remember, he's reiterating, you don't need the law. You now have the truth. That's what the law was driving you towards. You see, God made this promise to Abraham that his descendants would would produce the, the Redeemer, the one who would come. 430 years later, he gives Moses on Mount Sinai in Arabia, by the way. He mentioned that. I don't know if you saw that, but that does identify where Mount Sinai is, different than what my Bible shows on the map. Uh, he gave him the law to prepare them for the fact that they would need a redeemer. But you know, right, right after they gave them the law, he instituted the sacrificial system right after that because he said, you are not going to be able to keep this law that I'm giving you. You're going to need to be redeemed. You're going to have to be atoned for. And so he instituted the blood sacrifice of an animal. And all of it was to prepare them as a people for the final sacrifice that would come through Jesus Christ, who would be the complete and final sacrifice that they would already be aware of the process. And I have to tell you, it worked. It worked because when Paul would go into these towns or when any of these other people would go in and they would tell the gospel message to the people there and say, there, I know that we needed atonement for our sin every year by the blood sacrifice of an animal, but Jesus came and he was that sacrifice and he died for you and it was once and for all. Many believed because they were prepared and they knew what to expect. They were like, oh, that completely lines up. That's right. Our forefathers have been doing this atonement, this blood sacrifice for atonement for 1,500 years. I totally understand that. Yes, I accept Jesus as my sacrifice, as my savior. Many believed. You know, one question that pops into my mind is, why did God wait 1,500 years for Jesus to come? Like, why wasn't it like, all right, I'm going to give Moses the, the law. I'm going, to, I'm going to introduce sacrifice. I'm giving them a couple years to really get the understanding of that. And then just going to send Jesus and just redeem everybody. Like, why did he wait so long? The answer is, I don't know. <laughs> because he had a plan that when he reached the fullness of time, he would send his son. And that's the thing. And we're just like, Lord, why can't you come now? Why didn't you do this when I wanted it? Why are you waiting so long? Why did you come so soon? And God says, 
Because I'm God. Yeah. <laughs> remember, remember, I created the whole universe. You know, I told the ocean it could only come this far. I have all of the, all of the snow that's ever going to fall stored up in a, in a warehouse up here. Uh, and, um, you know, I know every grain of sand. I know every fish. I know every sparrow that falls to the ground. And then you go, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. I, I don't know what I was thinking. That's right. You're God. You know these things. So, you know, why did he wait that long? Because it was the exact right time according to his will and to his plan. Oh, boy. I lost my place. Oh. So then, verse 31, so then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. You see, we are children of the promise, the promise that God would send his son, a final and complete sacrifice, and that our righteousness would be through our faith in him, not based on what we can do, but based on what he already did. That is it. You know, if it were based on our works, there's some days that I feel like, if he came back right now, I'd probably make it. <laughs> Having a pretty good day. I've done a lot of good stuff. Come on back today, Lord, because I'm ready to go. But there are more days where I would be like, Lord, please don't come back today. Please don't come back today. I'm just, please, not today. Please don't come back today. I'm just, you know, I'm in the middle of something I know I shouldn't do. Please, Lord, don't come back. But because it's based on Jesus and not me. And I am a child of the promise. He can come back any day he wants, and I don't have to worry a single second. Because I am a child of the promise. Right? Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Lord. Lord, I am so so thrilled that my righteousness is because of Jesus, not because of my works, not because of anything that I do or can do. I can never be enough. Lord, I'm so grateful the assurance I have of heaven that I never have to worry day to day that I'm being good enough even that day. Lord, but I'm thankful that I don't have to worry that I'm too good on any day to start getting all puffed up in my own works, Lord. I thank you for Jesus. Lord, I'm blown away as I study through this letter of Galatians how this was your plan and you had it figured out. And Lord, I thank you for using a person like Paul who could speak so clearly to both sides. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Lord, I just pray that as we go out of here, as we prayed Thursday night and I continue to pray, Lord, that we would put on Jesus, that we would sink into the garment of Jesus Christ and be wrapped up in, surrounded by, held, and comforted by the one who knows all things, the one who knows the exact right time that everything should happen, Lord. Lord, help us to trust that every single day until you come back at the exact right time. Lord, thank you so much. We love you, Lord. We praise your name. It's in your name, Jesus, that we gather, and it is in your name that we sing. It's in your name that we pray, and it is your name, Lord, that we go out of this place today. Lord, help us to be a light 
in a dark world, drawing people to the truth. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.